Testament. I hope that you have a copy of the notes in front of you there and that you will follow along as we talk about this uh, great apostle, the Apostle Paul, the great missionary of the church who left us so very much by his life and by his writings. Paul, in these latter chapters of the letters to the Corinthians, has decided to show his infirmities and his marks of discipleship, what qualified him to be called a disciple. He was not one of the 12 original apostles, as you know, not converted until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ when Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus. But through his infirmities and through his ministry, he affirms that he is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this 12th chapter further reveals his credentials of apostleship. And as we look at them, we can truly never deny that he was a full apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first segment of his apostleship goes through the sixth verse of this chapter, and we call it his revelations from Christ. The man that Paul is talking about in these verses is, of course, himself. Verse 2 says, I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body, he says again, or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Now, as I said, he is talking about himself, one of the thrilling experiences of his life. Now, if you want the account, it is in Acts, the 14th chapter, when Paul was at Lystra. They stoned Paul outside the city, and the Scripture says they left him for dead, verses 19 and 20. They really thought he was dead, and I believe he was. But the church gathered around him and prayed, and Paul came back to life, was healed, and proceeded on his way in his ministry. The interesting thing about this is for 14 years, Paul didn't say anything about this experience. That is the time elapsed since Acts 14 and 2 Corinthians 12. 14 years. Can you imagine having experience like he talks about and not telling anybody about it? I suppose he thought that nobody would understand it anyway. Have you ever had an encounter with Jesus that to others just sounded incredibly ridiculous? It is difficult to talk about sometimes because people are not often on the same wavelength spiritually, and this was the case with the Apostle Paul. Now, I want to talk for just a moment about this thing of paradise. It's an interesting study, and many people do not understand what paradise is. If you want to write down references, one is Luke 23, verse 43. 
It is a familiar passage. Jesus was on the middle cross. There was a thief on his right and a thief on his left. One reviled him, one cursed him. The other said, if thou be the Christ, then I want to be with you. And I believe you are the Christ. And Jesus turned to that thief and he said something interesting. Today, you will be with me where? In paradise. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. There's another reference that I think is interesting, and it's in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse number 7. It's talking about the Ephesian church. And to the Ephesians, John, by the Spirit, said that in the garden of God there would be a tree of life. And he referred to it this way, a tree of life in the paradise of God. Now, where would you suppose that would be? Paul says, I was taken into the third heaven. Now, there is a heaven right above us. It's the air we breathe. And then there is the starry heaven, which is only detectable really well by strong telescopes. And then there is the third heaven that Paul was privileged to visit, paradise. And he said, I saw there things too wonderful to even talk about. I, I can't even tell you about them. Do you have any problem believing that? That paradise would be so magnificent that a man coming back would have a difficult time explaining it? We have today people who have out-of-the-body experiences. A good many of them, I believe, are very valid. Where people actually come out of their body, their spirit rises, goes upward, and in many instances is in the presence of God. They see Jesus. They converse with Jesus. And Jesus tells them that it's not time yet. And he sends them back. And their spirit re-enters the body, and they scare people half to death because they begin to talk and move when indeed they thought they were dead. I was listening to a tape the other day of a young man who had such an experience, and he was actually in the morgue. It had gone that far when his spirit came back into his cold body, and he said, I... I awakened shivering in that cold morgue and I began to make sounds. <laughs> and you can imagine the results. But he shared that out-of-the-body experience. And the Lord told him, in essence, that he wanted him to come back and share his experience, his testimony, that it was not time for him yet to come. I think that's what Paul is talking about. It is a biblical experience. And Paul uses it as one of the signs of his apostleship. Now, you don't have to have that kind of experience to be an apostle, but it was one that he used as a sign of his apostleship. God had given him some very specific revelations. And because of those specific revelations, 
He said, these are my credentials. I have been literally in the paradise of God. I have been in the very presence of God. And it was so overwhelming for the apostle that he said, I just can't even talk about it. I, I know a man in Christ about 14 years ago who had this experience. It's very clever the way he talks about it. When you come to verse 5, of such in one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory. If you once see Jesus in his fullness and in his power, it's him that you want to talk about and not yourself. And this was Paul's experience without doubt. In the 26th chapter of the book of Acts, which is close to the end of that great book that gives us the history of the early church, verse number 16, we read how Christ is identified with believers, and Luke says as he writes, But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee. Paul had experienced things already and he would be experiencing other things by direct revelation of God and Luke records it for the church to hear. Paul had experiences or we call them revelations of God and from God that qualified him as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Direct revelation from the Lord. Now, there are people who say today that that does not happen anymore. I read these remarks from time to time from various authors. They say that you cannot expect revelations from Christ anymore, like Paul had. Well, I, I disagree. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he's still calling apostles, and if he needs to give direct revelations for whatever purpose, then that's up to him, and it should not be a thing incredible, thought incredible, for him to do that even today. And so when we hear these testimonies, if the life is right, if the life is lined up with the Word of God, we ought not to just say, oh, for heaven's sake, there's another one of those kooks. Let's be careful of that because that's what these people were doing with this dynamic apostle. And they missed the blessing of the revelation. They missed the joy of the experience that could have been theirs if they had listened to the apostle Paul and shared in the glory of that experience. All of us ought to know a little bit about this because prayer brings us into a possibility of revelation. The Word of God brings us into the possibility of revelation, and there are times when we ought to be just so filled with God, so filled with Jesus, so filled with the Spirit that we literally bubble over with enthusiasm and information about what the Holy Spirit is showing us about our Lord. That kind of day has not passed nor ended. And everybody that believes that says amen. God would not have done this for Paul if he was not his chosen servant. That's what the first six verses are about. The second, 7 through 10, his thorn in the flesh. You've heard a lot about Paul's thorn in the flesh. Now, the translation of this in the Greek is very interesting. It means that he had a sharp stake 
in his life. Because in the day of Paul, it was uh, the practice in some cases, particularly with Christians, that Rome didn't appreciate to literally drive a stake into their body, sharp stake. Very nice way to die. Or in many instances, they wouldn't immediately die. They would just suffer for hours on end in agony and eventually succumb to the pain and the suffering and the bleeding. And when he talks about his thorn in the flesh, translated, it means that he experienced, in essence, a sharp stake in his life. There are many ideas about his ailment. Let's read in verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, talking about this rapturous experience, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. In other words, it was used by God to keep Paul where he wanted him. Now notice God didn't send it, God allowed it. These things are satanic in nature because they come as a result of sin in the world. God did not send sickness and disease. It came as a result of sin. But he allows it. He allowed the boils on Job. And he allowed the thorn in the flesh for the apostle Paul so that he would not be exalted above measure. Now Paul responds and says, For this thing I besought the Lord three times. I prayed three times that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, isn't it great when God speaks to us? My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Put the word your in there. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He would rather have the power of Christ with the infirmity, then no infirmity and no power. I think that's smart. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. And then this great statement, for when I am weak, then am I strong. His thorn in the flesh, what was it? I have read many, many ideas Personally, I feel that he had an eye ailment of some kind. Perhaps when he was supernaturally converted and the light from heaven blinded Paul, there was somehow transmitted a problem that he never got over. Now we, in studying the scripture, notice in several places, such as Galatians 4.15 and Galatians 6.11, where he says, with what large letters I write unto you. Now these are not long letters in the sense of chapters and verses. He was talking about the size of the letters he was writing. He had to write them large because of his eye trouble. This would have been a trial to Paul, both physically and emotionally, as it would be to anybody and would certainly be called a stake in the flesh or a thorn in the flesh as it is referred to here. His enemies at Corinth had been accusing Paul of being weak. Chapter 10, verse 1, 
and verse 10, chapter 11, verse 6, and verse 29. And now Paul says, as he disarms them, I am weak. But this weakness, he says, is a gift from God. It's something that I glory in. That which he was being accused of was to him a blessing in disguise and something that kept him walking very closely to the Lord. I want to examine for just a moment with you what he says in verse 9. In the midst of his thorn, this stake literally driven into his flesh as he felt this suffering and felt this pain, he says, as God speaks to him, here's the message. My grace is sufficient for thee. I'm speaking primarily in this meeting, I'm sure, to Christian people. I want you to know that God does not spare us things just because we are Christians. God does not necessarily take us through this life without something to conquer and without some stake driven into our flesh. To Paul, there came the promise and the reality of God's all-sufficient grace. And I want to say tonight, there is not enough emphasis on Paul's testimony. We hear so much about the pain and we hear so much about the stake and about the suffering. Where is the testimony of the all-sufficient grace of God? That's what rings in this chapter to me. I just love this testimony that Paul had. My grace is sufficient for thee. I'm not going to take away the stake, Paul. You don't need to pray anymore about it. You've prayed three times. Now here's my message. My grace is going to be sufficient for thee. You'll make it. And so he never prayed again. There are several areas that I think we could just quickly mention. Physical weariness. Physical weariness. Do you know that Paul traveled on three long missionary journeys? He tried to touch the known world with the message of Jesus Christ, and he had no airplane and no train, and he had no automobile to do it with. In most instances, he had to walk. And when he got to the sea, he got on ships that sometimes sunk in the middle of the sea. And yet he did it in physical weariness. And he was able to say, God's grace was sufficient for me. We're living in a soft generation. John Wesley preached 42,000 sermons. He averaged 4,500 miles of travel every year. He rode 60 to 70 miles a day and preached three sermons a day on an average. And when he was 83 years of age, he wrote, I am a wonder to myself. I am never tired, either with preaching, writing, or traveling. At 83, John Wesley somehow captured what Paul captured in his life, that in physical weariness there was the possibility of the overwhelming grace of God which would be sufficient for the tasks that were before. I want to hear more testimonies like that. I really do. It was the work of the all-sufficient grace of God. Then I think it's true in physical pain. 
that we can have a similar testimony. It enabled Paul to bear the pain of the cruel stake that he was going through. I read about a man who once visited a little girl who was in a bed dying of incurable and a most painful disease. And he had come across a little book that he thought would bring cheer to this little girl dying in this bed. And so he read it to her. It was a happy kind of a book, a, a laughing kind of a book. And she said to him, as he shared it with her, thank you very much, but I know this book. And he said, well, have you read it already? And she looked up and said, I wrote it. That's the all-sufficient grace that the church needs to testify of in the midst of its pain and in the midst of its suffering. It's obvious Jesus doesn't heal everybody just because they ask. And I'll never be able to explain that, but I know it's true. He does heal. I believe in his power to heal, and I'll pray for people till the day I die for healing. But he does not choose to heal everybody. He did not choose to heal the Apostle Paul. And I don't care who you hear on tape or on television who says you've got sin in your life. If you're not healed, that's a bunch of bunk. You cannot back that up with the Word of God. It could be, but it ain't necessarily so. And let's not get under bondage when people start throwing that stuff around, no matter who they are, what their credentials are. Paul prayed and was not healed. And God said, my grace is sufficient in your pain. You're going to be a better man because of this pain. And he experienced the all-sufficient grace of God. And so must we, and can we. Then that all-sufficient grace was there for the opposition that he faced. You know that Paul faced tremendous opposition. No amount of opposition would break him or make him turn back. Oh, that we might have that today. People start complaining. Nobody understands me. I'm persecuted at work, I'm persecuted at home, I'm persecuted at school. Hey, there's an all-sufficient grace available for you. And God may not remove those persecutors from your midst, but he will, in the midst of them, give you his all-sufficient grace. Hallelujah. Now, put that on, will you, and take it home with you. And rejoice in your persecutors. God may have them there for a better reason than you now understand. Then they slandered the Apostle Paul. They said he wasn't an apostle. He was a fake. He was, a, he was somebody who didn't have the credentials. And he was able to hear God say, Hey, let them say what they want to say. My grace is sufficient for you. You're going to make it. You're going to be mine forever. It helps, doesn't it? Paul came to the place in his Christian walk where he didn't really care what men thought. The only thing that concerned him was the attitude of his God about him, the feeling of the Lord Jesus about him. God knew what he was, and that was what really counted with the Apostle Paul. Have you arrived at that point? 
So what if somebody calls you thus and so? As long as God knows what you are, that's what's important, and his grace is sufficient for you in that situation, no matter what they say or how they say it. Jesus will be there to give you what you need. Praise God. It is the glory of life that in this kind of a world that persecutes good people that we can say God's grace is sufficient. Praise the Lord. That's what they're saying in Russia, in China. That's what they're saying all over the world where there is persecution. God's grace has seen me through. My brother, sister, grab hold of that tonight. Verse 9, 2 Corinthians 12. Get a hold of it. No matter where you are, no matter what pit you may feel you're in or what valley you're going through, take that as a word from God. My grace is sufficient for thee. Paul's stake. God allowed and gave him what he needed to endure it. On your notes, I have put down four things that I'm just going to let you read and take with you. Spiritual blessings are more important than physical. Unanswered prayer does not always mean the need is not met. Weakness is strength if Christ is in it, which is our theme tonight, and there is grace to meet every need. Now, do you subscribe to that? 2 Corinthians 4, 7, if you turn back and just look at this one verse that we already touched on when we were in that passage. Paul said, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. That sort of sums it all up. The excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Whatever his weakness, he knew it would bring glory to Christ, and that was what mattered to the apostle. Number three, verses 11 through 18, his apostolic signs. You might be surprised at these signs. They begin with patience. <laughs> Before he talks about signs and wonders, he talks about patience in verse 12. This is a sign of an apostle. Truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience. He was a patient man as he dealt with these rebels in the spirit. It's an interesting sign, isn't it? Paul lists several signs that proved his apostleship, but he started with this significant fruit of the spirit. Patience. How are you doing? Then, interestingly enough, in verses 17 and 18, I'm not even going to talk about the signs and wonders. Those are obvious as you read his life. But in 17 and 18, he says that one of the signs of my apostleship is my attitude about money. He did not love filthy lucre. He was a true servant of Christ, and a true servant of Christ does not have a love of money. And he talks about it very openly. He reminds them that he and Titus proved their love for the church in the way they supported themselves. And I think that's a very interesting sign in this world today where you have religious vultures reaching out for the dollars of God's people. 
and they do so with all kinds of lying trickery. You don't think I'm too hard, do you? If you are one of those who gets all of these letters from all of these people all over the world who are winning the world to Christ and you're responding to those letters, please, please, throw them in the round file over in the corner. God cannot be as desperate as those letters indicate. God cannot be that poor. And the methods and the means and the gimmicks that they try to put on you, you ought to immediately recognize they're not an apostle of Jesus Christ. They're an apostle of themselves. That's one of Paul's signs. He said, I wasn't after your money. I worked hard and supported myself, as did Titus, so that you would never be able to criticize us. <laughs> if some of these individuals were living then, they'd have to write a whole different story than what Paul wrote. They'd have to write about their holy garments from the Holy Land and water out of the Galilee and uh, anointed cloth and all kinds of nonsense. God isn't in that any more than... Well, I'm not even going to say. It just aggravates me. When God shows us how to give, and we let these hucksters take money which should be invested in the kingdom of God, and it goes to pad pockets, of men who are not apostles of Jesus Christ. It's about time we woke up and followed the biblical pattern. And I just say it because Paul said it's one of the marks of an apostle. He doesn't have a love for money. God's going to meet his need. You see, it's not miracles and signs alone that are proof of an apostle. That's not it alone. That's wonderful if they're there, but I want to look a little bit further than the supposed miracles and signs and wonders. I want to see if he's patient. I want to see what his attitude about money is and these other things that Paul points out as he writes these many letters to the church. These were his signs. His motives were pure. You could trust him. His miracles were from God, not man-made. And he was able to present himself anywhere and to anybody as a true disciple and apostle of the Lord. It's a challenge to all of us, fellas, ministers. A challenge to all of us to keep our hearts right and our motives pure and that we serve God with a clean heart. And then finally, in verses 19 through 21, this man had a courage to deal with sin. You will see how weak I am, is what he says. If you wait for me to do it, you'll see how humble I can be in the hands of the Lord. In other words, he was talking about cleaning the church up of its fornication. If you get to the last verse, he really starts describing this church. It was a fornicated church. In chapter 5, he talks about a man who was sleeping with his own mother. 
in the church. And he told them what to do with that man. And yet, they are still unrepentant, unclean, and fornication and lasciviousness, he says, you have committed. And now he has some of his satire here. He says, you will see how weak I am if you don't clean things up before I get there. Because when I get there, you're going to see how humble I am, he says, by the house cleaning that's going to take place. <laughs> I wonder how long he'd last in the local church today. <laughs> you see, Paul was much like Jesus. When the hireling sees the wolf coming, he runs. But when the shepherd sees the wolf come, he stays with the sheep and he protects the sheep. No matter how many bullets are fired at him or swords are thrust at him, he stays with the sheep and he protects them. That was his whole heart. And he says to them in writing, hey, here's part of my apostleship. I'm not afraid to call sin, sin, a spade, a spade. And if you don't clean this mess up before I get there, I'm going to clean it up, I'll guarantee you because it's anti-Christ and anti-God, and I care about the sheep. A little leaven does leaven the whole lump, and some leaven had gotten into the church. And Paul says, I'm going to clean it out. And so may I say to you, whatever preacher ever fills this pulpit, you ought to make sure that he has the courage to call sin, sin, or he doesn't deserve to stand behind this desk. Any preacher of the gospel that is going to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, no matter what it means in the offerings, no matter what it means in the election at the annual business meeting, he says it's fornication, he says it's adultery, he says it's wrong, and he calls it just like the book calls it, without fear, without trembling. And I just want to tell you, in case you hadn't noticed, that's my full intent, that I have no other reason for living or being than to guard the sheep and to present to people a way of righteousness and holiness that will bring them happiness and fulfillment in their lives. There were two kinds of sins, social, verse 20, Look at them, debates, envyings, wrath, strifes, backbitings, whispering, swellings, tumults. Quite a church, huh? And in verse 21, sexual sins. You see, in any congregation, Paul is saying, here are the two categories, the social sins and the sexual sins. What are the social sins? They're the elder brother sins. The elder brother says, why didn't you treat me like that? Why didn't you kill the fatted calf for me? Why didn't you put a robe on me? The elder brother, he's critical, he's backbiting, he's slandering, he's complaining, he's angry. The other sins are the sins of the prodigal who went out and sowed his wild oats. He committed these sins uncleanness and 
fornication and lasciviousness. And we often like to deal with the latter ones without dealing with the former ones. But when the Holy Spirit moves into a church, he deals with them all whether they're the elder brother kind of sins, the social sins, or the prodigal kind of sins, the sexual sins. Both needed to repent. Both needed to get right with God. Both needed to cease the way of life. And Paul says, my mark of discipleship is courage to deal with it as it is revealed to me by the Holy Spirit. So here is a test, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's a test for Christian servants. Are we willing to follow the same pattern in the 20th century that Paul followed in that first century as an apostle of Jesus Christ? Personally, I like to subscribe to it. How do you feel about it? I think he was a wise godly, spirit-filled man who really had a revelation from God about how the church ought to be. If Christ is in something, my dear friends, we can manage as long as Christ is in it and as long as glory is coming to his name. Which way should you take? Which way should you go in the light of 2 Corinthians 12 and the prodigal
that